And we continue in our series that we've entitled Living uh, in the Light. And uh, we've been in that series for eight weeks now, and we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 2, uh, and we'll be in verses 18, and I'm going to read through verse 27 this morning, uh, but we're not going to go through all of that this morning because this is going to be the first in in a two-part section of Scripture that we're going to deal with. And uh, in this series we've been looking at for the last eight weeks, uh, the idea of what it means to maintain fellowship with our God. And last week we finished up uh, that focus of maintaining our fellowship with God. And this week John moves us to start learning how we are to uh, maintain fellowship with the idea of truth, that uh, we are to live uh, lives that are directed and uh, guided by the truth of God and His Scriptures. And for the rest of this chapter, we'll be focused in on the importance of being led and guided by that absolute truth uh, that seems to be so commonplace these days to be thrown to the side. Uh, We live in a world that says there is no absolute truth. We live in a world that says truth uh, can only be seen in the uh, hands of the beholder. What may be true for me may not be true for you. And in this postmodern world, truth is something that we as believers must affirm and also live out. Because if we don't have that, then we have nothing to give to this world that has the questions it does and the issues that it faces today. And so I want to look at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. I'm going to ask you to stand again as we read God's Word and ask for His blessing on our time. This is what John says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that, that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if had they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what He has promised us, even eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from Him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and just as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in Him. Father God, we have worshipped You this morning in song and now we worship you through your word lord sanctify us with your truth we recognize today that there are many in our world that desire nothing more than to lead us away from that truth father this is the thing that will uh, be a characteristic of these last days And so, Lord, we must be on guard. We must recognize uh, uh, the true spirit uh, that comes from you and those false spirits that come uh, from this world and and, and in their end will find themselves in hell. So, Father, we need your truth. We need to be guided and led by that truth so that we may live lives that are pleasing and honorable to you. So, Lord, open our hearts and our minds this morning to what you have to teach us from your word in this great passage of Scripture that is before us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This last week in the USA Today, an article was written that the terror watch list uh, reached one million uh, different people. Of course, since 9-11, our government has been uh, investigating and looking into the lives of people that have suspicious activities uh, surrounding their lives. And if there's enough suspicious activity that is taking place in their life, uh, they will be put on a watch list. 
As a result of that watch, there's a higher level of surveillance that goes on as a result of it. If you're on this watch list, you're, you're not going to be able to fly uh, anywhere uh, in any airport in the United States and many times throughout the world. You're going to have very difficult times to even uh, involve yourself in any kind of immigration process because our government has deemed it necessary to keep an eye on uh, this individual, these million individuals, because it is their concern, it is their fear that left to their own devices, these million individuals could, could wreak great havoc within our lives as Americans. And so what they've done is they've classified what they call the terrorist watch list. Well, in our text today, John doesn't give a political or a national watch list of terrorists. But he says, in our world, there are what he would entitle spiritual terrorists. Those that want to come in uh, to the lives of Christians, into the church of the living God, and wreak havoc in the church uh, by denouncing the name of Christ, by leading people uh, to immorality through wrongful beliefs and practices, and as a result, to deny God the glory uh, that is due His name. Now, this is something that we would see over and over again in the days that we live in. I want you to turn for a moment. We're going to be looking at a lot of different scriptures this morning. Uh, So get your hands ready. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3. Paul talks about this. And Paul gives us this understanding that uh, there there are people that we need to be wary of. And that uh, there are going to be people in our world and even in our churches who are going to desire for us to pursue a different type of Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last day. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Without love, they're unforgiving and slanderous. Without self-control, they are brutal. Not lovers of the good. They're treacherous, rash, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, now, if we stop there, we would say, well, of course, Paul, we recognize that there are sinners in this world. But what Paul is telling us is something that we need to understand. Because many times we think that there are only terrorists in the, in the political and national sense in the Middle East or in some foreign land. We don't have to worry about it here. But what Paul is teaching us is he tells us at the end of this passage that we've just been reading, he says they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. And he says have nothing to do with them. This isn't just a a description of sinners. This is a description of people that are within the church. And he says they have a religion. They say they have a faith, but they deny the power. And that's why they fall prey to all of these things. And so what Paul and and even Jesus and John in our passage today are going to say, this isn't about sinners, but these are people who are in our churches who sound real Christian, who have the Christian language down, but John calls them antichrists. And we need to understand what he means by this idea of false teachers. And to be able to do that, John sets us in a new direction in verse 18. And in this new direction, after talking about the schemes of the world, destroying our fellowship with God, he now moves to specific people whose desire is to get you and I to turn our backs on the faith and to follow them down the road of immorality and idolatry and false religion. And so that's the direction he wants to go. And in doing so, we see four things that I want to quickly move through today. The first thing that we see is that as we're reminded of this passage, we're reminded, first of all, of the problem that Christians will face in the last days. John tells us that in these last days, we are going to endure some problems. Now notice twice in verse 18, he speaks about this being the last hour. He says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now more Antichrists have come. 
This is how we know it's the last hour. Now, I know some of you are asking the question, what does it mean by the last hour? Did John think that the world was about to end? I mean, this was written at the end of the first century, and so maybe John was mistaken to think that uh, the world was coming to an end. Was he some sort of doomsday expert, uh, kind of like a, a first century Nostradamus who, who saw the things coming together and said, yeah, God's coming back. Well, there's no question that the first century believers believed that the, the coming of the Lord would be quick. But how can we look at this phrase and understand it of what John is meaning by the last hour? Now, commentators are mixed on what John was meaning. And as you look at most of those commentators, once they've worked through all the different speculation, they will all agree, almost all of them will agree, that what John is reminding us of is that we live in the last days. The last days started at the incarnation of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. Galatians chapter 4 tells us that when the time had fully come, God sent his son to be born of a woman. And at that moment, we get this idea of this hourglass uh, that the sands were falling through. And as that last piece of sand came through from the top to the bottom, it was time for Jesus to be introduced to the world. Well, many commentators, I believe uh, it was uh, John MacArthur in his commentary said, what happened at the moment of Bethlehem, God turned over the hourglass and the sands began to begin to fall again. And we're waiting for, of course, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so today and throughout the centuries, we are in the last hour of that celestial hourglass uh, that the sands are falling. Even now as we speak through human history, those sands are falling as we sit here in worship today. And, and we are getting ever the more closer to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so John is reminding us that there's this sense of urgency. Christ is coming back. Now some of you will say, boy, it's been a long time to be saying it's the last hour. But I don't want you to forget a passage. Turn for a moment to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter uh, 3. Right before the book of John, uh, First John, you'll have the book of Second Peter, just a, a page over. And in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, we see that we cannot forget this one thing, Peter says. He says, with, a, with the Lord, a day is like, help me out with that, a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, why did he write this? In verse 3, Peter says that, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, there will be scoffers who will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? And Paul, or Peter says, I want you to know, we do not live on the same timetable as God does. God didn't roll his eyes and say, oh, uh, i got to roll my clock up ahead. I'm going to lose an hour of sleep today. He does not live by human standards of time. And so what has seemed like 2,000 years to us has been but two days in the life of God the Father. And one day he's going to come and he has called us to understand these are the last days that he's been a part of. And so that leads us to urgency. That leads us to uh, live differently because we know there is a day that is coming. Now, Jesus would speak about this uh, idea of last days. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Mark, the book of Mark. Mark chapter 13, you have the Gospel of Matthew, then of course the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Now even though we're called uh, to be ready, we're called to be alert, because uh, the, the day is coming, we live in the last days, and the next thing on the uh, schedule or, or uh, time in God's timetable is the second coming of Jesus Christ, we need to also recognize that uh, Jesus says don't speculate about his coming. Mark 13, verse 32, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard, be alert. 
You do not know when that time will come. And so we need to understand that what Jesus is saying is, is okay. It is not for you to know when my coming will take place. Now, there will be many signs, and we're made aware of that, especially in Matthew 24 and 25, in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. But what he calls us to do and live like in these last days is to guard and to be on alert. And I think one of the reasons why he does that is because every time it talks about the last days, there is this inference that they will be days of great trouble. Ray Steadman, a favorite preacher of mine, uh, spent a lot of time on this idea of in those days there will be times of trouble. And he articulates that we will have repetitive times over and over, cycles if you will, of great trouble in the church where we will see uh, what seems to be the last days. And that's why through human history, many people have said this is the, the day that the Lord is going to come. It seems like everything has come together. And of course, we can speculate today that the Lord may be coming any moment because of the things that we see on the horizon. But let us never forget what Jesus says when he says, be on guard and be alert. Don't spend your time speculating. Now, why was this such a big problem in these last days? What was it? Well, we see that Paul gives us uh, some warnings in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 uh, gives us an understanding of what the problem is in these last days. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he tells us that these will be terrible times. Well, what is going to be so terrible? What is going to be so bad? Well, the church is going to be infiltrated by these spiritual terrorists, what we want to call, or what the scriptures call, false teachers. Now, notice what John says in our text about these false teachers. He gives us, first of all, what I want to call uh, of three warnings. First, a parental warning uh, to his spiritual children. He gives a parental warning to his spiritual children. Now notice what he says. Dear children. Now in verse 18 we see he uses this term that he's used over and over again. In fact we talked about it just a couple weeks ago in chapter uh, 2 verse 12 when he says I write to you dear children. Now the difference is is that two Greek words are used. The first word in uh, verse 12 of chapter 2 is the Greek word technia. And technia uh, means uh, uh, little ones that are uh, of a certain age. I would speak of my uh, three boys as uh, technia, young boys, young children. But what John uses here is another Greek word. And what this Greek word speaks of is not so much as, as an age as much as one who is unlearned, one who maybe might be naive or, or maybe doesn't know all that they need to, hasn't come into a maturity of thought and mind. And so what he's saying is, is dear young ones in the faith, dear young ones in spirit, dear young ones who haven't been able to understand and, and master all the truths of Scripture that you need to know, he wants to articulate as a spiritual father, be careful. In these last days, there will be times of trouble. And so we want to make sure those that are young around us, especially on the spiritual nature, young in faith, are careful with what's going on. And so he starts out with this parental warning. Notice the next thing he says. We see a parental warning, and then we see a previous warning about one who is coming. He says, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Now he says, now notice what he says. He says, there's one that is coming. And he says that you have already heard about. Where have they heard about this? Well, no doubt because First John was written at the later part of the first century that some of Paul's letters were being circulated around. We know that John wrote the, the book of First John to the church in Ephesus. And writing to them, and there's no question that Paul knew this church and was aware of what was going on in this church. And, and no doubt that in these letters that Paul had written about, he had spoken about this Antichrist. Turn in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians for a moment. The book to the church at Thessalonica, the second letter, uh, Paul sp uh, speaks about it. He speaks about this idea of the Antichrist coming. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 
uh, verses uh, 1 through 4 and then 9 and 10, we get uh, a picture of this one who is to come. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter that is supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way that that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose, uh, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped so that he sets up for him, uh, sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now notice verse nine, uh, or verse eight. And the, then the lawless one who will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion that they will believe the lie, and so that they will all be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. John says there is one who is coming. You've heard about him. His name is the man of lawlessness. In the book of Revelation, verse 13, he is speak, spoken about as the beast. And, and this man that is coming will be a world leader. He'll be a world leader like none we have ever seen before. He will revive the old Roman Empire and he will begin to place himself as high as God, as greater than God. And as a result of that, he will demand that people worship him. And in that worship, it will be a choice. Either you worship the Antichrist or you don't. And your don't isn't that you just are on the other side of the aisle in his in the political ball game with this man, but that you'll be put to death. Because you'll have to receive the mark of this man uh, that uh, is talked about in the book of Revelation. And so we hear about this uh, coming of this Antichrist. Now, there's a couple things I want you to understand about it. First of all, we need to recognize that as believers, we believe this man to be real. Now, we don't know whether he's on the earth now or will be on the earth at a later date. Again, there's no reason for us to try to speculate who that man is until we start to see some of those things happen. And of course, as, as a belief of this church, we believe that, uh, that before the coming of the Antichrist, we will be raptured away uh, to be with Christ in heaven before the coming of this Antichrist and the tribulation that will follow. But notice this, and this is important when we deal with the idea of the Antichrist. John gives a half a sentence on the Antichrist. He doesn't go in and start diagramming the whole book of Revelation and say, this is what you're going to look for and this is what he's going to look like and and this is the time he's going to come and and he's not going to write a whole set of novels about the coming of this guy. He just says he's coming. And I think sometimes we forget what the scripture articulates about the coming of Jesus Christ and the coming of end time things. As evangelicals, we can so get so excited sometimes about the details of Christ's coming that we forget to prepare ourselves for what is about to come. We're, uh, my family's going to be traveling uh, out to Washington, D.C. after the service today. And I could be so excited. I love to go see the sights out there. And I could be so excited that I just start thinking about where I want to go and what I want to do and, and get in the car and, and be heading out. And we could be halfway into Ohio. And I could remember, hey, I'm so excited. I, I forgot to pack something. I forgot to pack anything. And that's what happens when we start speculating about things. We forget the important things of being prepared, being alert. What John is articulating is a reminder that the coming of the Antichrist is not the subject matter, but our being prepared and our being ready is what we need to be all about. That doesn't mean we can't study it. That doesn't mean we can't enjoy looking to understand the plan of God. But let's keep our eyes on the prize. And this is something that we as evangelicals fail at all the time. I wrote down, John spends a a phrase talking about the Antichrist and then the rest of the passage talking about how we should live in the last days. 
Let's keep our eye focused on the real thing. Now notice the final thing that comes is a present warning about those who have already come. Notice what John says. He says in 1 John, he says, You've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it's the last hour. He says, okay, there's one who's coming, who has been prophesied about, who will be empowered by the devil to put on many counterfeit miracles and things. But, but don't forget that we live in the last days. And in those last days, as Paul said, that there will be scoffers. In those last days, as Jesus said, there will be many who will come and say, I am the Christ. He says, be careful of those. They're just as powerful as the Antichrist who will come because all of them can lead you away from the truth. And so he's articulating, they're already here. Jesus, write these passages down. Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus, Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, and Matthew 24, verses 23 through 26, two different times in that chapter, Jesus says that people will announce, there's the Christ, and it won't be Jesus. And he says, be careful, be aware that not everybody who comes and says, I've seen the Christ, will have seen Jesus Christ. And he articulates what that time in the last days will look like. And so this problem of false teachers is going to be prevalent, he says, in the time of the last days. We need to be aware of it. We need to be ready for it. Now notice the second thing that we see. The second thing that we see is that uh, we have to learn about the person that false teachers deny. These false teachers come in, and what is their modus operandi? It is to deny Jesus Christ. Notice verse 23. It says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. There are two ways that we can recognize who these people are. John doesn't say, hey, look for the people that are wearing blue jeans and, and the red shirt that says, I'm a false teacher. You know, we yesterday for the concert had these uh, placards that said we were uh, helping out with the night last night. And so people would be able to recognize if they had a question, they could come and talk with us. Well, false teachers don't wear a shirt that says, come talk to me about wandering away from the faith. I will give you directions. They don't say anything like that. And so how are we to know that they are false teachers? John says in verse 23, anyone who denies Jesus is a false teacher. Now that's not the only litmus test that we have, but when we look at false teachers, the first thing we have to look at is what is their position on Jesus Christ? Now he uses this phrase, he says they are the Antichrist. He says, even now many antichrists have come. Well, what are we to know about this denial? First of all, this denial involves a rejection against the biblical Christ. It's a rejection of the biblical Christ. Now, when we see the prefix anti or anti, we think of something that is diametrically opposed to that which it is going to come after it. So we have the antichrist, those that are opposed to Jesus Christ. And within that, we see that with Christ being the subject, there are people who will stand opposed to Jesus Christ, not as an individual. There are very few people in this world who will tell you that they don't agree with Jesus Christ, meaning they don't believe that he lived. Jesus Christ is a historical figure. Very few people will say to you, well, Jesus Christ never existed. Because both secular and biblical historians say there was one named Jesus. There's, there's no question about that. We have enough human written history that tells us outside of the Bible that there was a man named Jesus who, who was a teacher in first century Palestine. But what they will rebel against or reject is the idea that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what throws it all out. And this is what is seen in false religions today. Let me share with you of the major uh, religions in the world, their take on Jesus Christ. For the Mormons, they make Jesus out to be like every other human being, like you and I. They see Jesus as the kind of person that we should all strive to be. That Jesus as a man attained a nature of Godship. And that's not only for him, but that's for all of us who will live upright and holy lives and follow the Mormon teachings that we too can ascribe to that nature of God. That's what Mormons say. Then we have, of course, the Muslims, those in the Islamic faith. Now, they'll say great things about Jesus Christ, and they'll speak about him being a wonderful prophet, one of the great prophets. 
but he's lower than the greatest prophet, Muhammad. And that he is not equal with God in heaven. And they would be, uh, they would be angry with you if you were to affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. To them, that is the greatest heresy in, in the Islamic faith. And so there you have no problem saying, well, he was a great teacher, he was a great prophet, one of the great uh, five prophets in all of human history, but he's not the Son of God. Hindus see Jesus as one of the many incarnations of God. But the sad thing is, is just as Jesus is one of those incarnations, so are the trees that are standing out over there in Bliss Woods. So are we in many ways. And so Jesus, as great as he was, was no different than anything else in creation. Uh, We see Buddhists that will teach and, and proclaim Jesus was a good man, one that we can follow after as being one who lived a good life. Unitarians say that Jesus was merely an influential man of history. Jehovah's Witness see Jesus Christ as being the first one who was created by God, and that makes him not God in any way. And then, of course, the New Age teaches that Jesus is one way of following a pattern of living. One of many ways that you can go. Now, this has been the case for 2,000 years. The church has been dealing with this issue. In fact, most of the creeds that were written in the first 400 years after Christ were written to affirm the deity of Jesus Christ. This is the problem that John is facing. And this is the problem that we see today. There will be people who will rebel against the biblical Christ. So beware. Beware because they'll come to your doorstep. Beware they'll come into your church. Now notice the second thing we see. This denial involves not only a a rebellion or a rejection, but a replacement. Uh, The word anti uh, doesn't just mean that they're opposed to God. But it also can mean that they also can be in place of God. So John is warning us of those who stand in opposition to God, but he says also be careful of those who put something else in place of Jesus Christ. Be careful of those who replace Jesus with something else. Now the false teachers of their day would say many wonderful things about Jesus Christ. And they would speak about Christ in a, a lot of wonderful ways, but what they would do, and this was seen by the Gnostics of John's day, who he probably was speaking about in our text, that Christ, as great as he was, was the middleman. Now you'd say, of course Jesus is the middleman, not in the way that we see Christ as our mediator. But they would say that through Jesus, we have an opportunity to gain a higher knowledge of God. And so Jesus was kind of the picture of how we would get to understand the unknown God in a way that many people wouldn't be able to. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound all that bad. The problem is, is any theology that doesn't have its sum total being Jesus Christ is a false religion. If Jesus Christ is a stepping stone in anyone's faith, then you have diminished Jesus Christ as being the sole son of God to being a path by which we get to a higher level of enlightenment. My friends, this is seen in, and I don't like to name names, but this is seen uh, in the false theology and the false teaching that Oprah has espoused. You'll hear Oprah articulate the ideas and the thoughts of the new earth and, and her teacher Eckhart Tolle, who will say wonderful things about Jesus, but Jesus is the middleman. The end result is not to get to Jesus and to know him crucified and to suffer with him and to know the power of his resurrection, but to understand what he calls as the Christ consciousness, the Christ way of thinking, so that we can attain a greater level of enlightenment. My friends, what Oprah is espousing today is 21st century Gnosticism at its core. This is what John is talking about, and it has not died. It is living and it is active right now today. And this is what is being articulated. Don't give up Jesus, they say, but understand you just need Jesus to get you to a better place. And once you get to that better place, you can do whatever you want with Jesus. Understand what I taught you last week. The world system wants to replace Jesus. They want Jesus out of your thought and mind. And any time that the world can diminish Jesus from it, they have done what the spirit of the Antichrist wants, and that is to get you to get off of thinking about Jesus and to start replacing him with the things of this world. Notice what happens next, point three. The place that they desert. Notice what happens in verse 19. 
It tells us that uh, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. That is a tongue-twisting passage of Scripture. And in this thing, what we learn is that false teachers who come in these last days, these scoffers, these ones who are going to bring heresies and terrible doctrine, are not going to come from outside the church. But they're going to come up from within the church. Uh, it is seen in the books, book of Acts chapter 20. Let me just read this for you. Acts chapter 20. Paul says this to the Ephesian elders. Now remember, where was First John uh, being written to? What church? Church at Ephesus. What does Paul say to the people in Ephesus in his farewell to the Ephesian elders in uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, verse uh, 28 through 30? This is what he says. He says, keep watch over yourselves and the flock uh, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Listen to what he says in verse 30. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to drive away or draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Where are these false teachers going to come? Where is this crazy doctrine going to come? It isn't just going to come from outside the church and from the world, but it will come up from within. These false teachers that John is talking about were pastors. They were elders. They were probably, I don't think they had Sunday school like we did, but the teachers, the small group leaders of their day. And so the pattern was, is what would happen is they'd get involved in a church, they would show great giftedness and charisma, and they would stand up and they would uh, tell great things about God, but then they would start little by little to get away from the biblical understanding of Christ. And as pride welled up and as knowledge came into being, what would happen was is they would start to share arrogant things about Jesus Christ and arrogant things about the faith. And as a result of that, it would draw others away from them. Now notice the two things that we see. First of all, fellowship is abandoned. Fellowship is abandoned. Beware, my friends, when someone tells you that they're going to leave the church and and start something new. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to beware of a false teacher. If someone says, you know what, village isn't the place for me anymore. I'm going to move on. You don't need to say, Tim said you're a false teacher and I need to stay away from you. That's not what John is talking about. But these people left because they had an arrogance that they knew who Jesus was. They knew what real Christianity was and the church didn't. They had this new idea of who God was and how God interacted. And so they said, you know what? We don't need to hang out with you neophytes. We don't need to hang out with you, you guys that are dealing with the old faith, the way you guys deal with the old ways of things. We've come up with something new and improved. And this is what Jesus, and this is what God is trying to get across. And this is special revelation that no one else has. Joseph Smith, before he started the Mormon church, uh, writes in his diaries that he spent months trying to work through uh, which church was the true church. And after a couple months of looking, not a long search, but a couple months of looking at Catholics and Protestants and all the dominations in between, he says that there was no true church and that Jesus was now calling him to start the true church. Beware of that. Beware of that. Now, that doesn't mean any church is perfect. The churches have issues. They have struggles. We don't understand all of Scripture as wonderfully as we would like at times. But be careful of those who wander away from the fellowship of Christians to pursue what they consider to be the new true church or the new true Jesus Christ. We need to be aware of that and be careful. Notice the second thing. Their faith is absent. Their faith is absent. It says we know that they weren't with us because they left us. The true colors of of any teacher is perseverance. That they will continually be marked through the continuity of the truth that they proclaim. We need to be careful that we aren't looking just at the flash that they're showing and the wonderful uh, grandeur of their teaching, but that we look at what their message is. Now notice a couple things. I want you to write these down. We're running short on time, so we'll move quickly through these. 
When we look at false teachers, we see a couple of things. Number one, these men will pursue things that are worthless. Second Timothy chapter two, verses 16 through 18. They will pursue things that are worthless. Paul tells Timothy, don't get involved in these conversations of old wives tales and mindless genealogies. In the grand scheme of things, those don't matter. And yet this is what these guys are preaching. They're worthless things. Uh, Number two, instead of pursuing maturity in the faith, they will pursue preeminence in the church like Diotrephus in 3 John, verses 9 through 12. Diotrephus was one who wanted to be first in all things. He wanted to be the go-to guy. Beware of a teacher who says, it's all about me. It's all about my greatness. It's all about my ministry and, and my understanding of who God is. Beware of those individuals. And number three, beware of those uh, whose absence of their faith shows them to be led to immorality. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, and verses 20 through 24, two of the churches in Asia Minor were being led away by false teachers into immorality. And so what was being said was, just as the Gnostics were in John's day, your flesh doesn't matter, so go and involve yourself in all the vices of the world because it's only the spirit that matters, not the flesh and bone that we carry around. So what you do in the flesh doesn't matter. Beware of teachers like that. Uh, be careful of those who live hypocritical lives. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Be careful that, make sure that the teachers that you have uh, teaching you live lives that are blameless and upright before God. And finally, be careful of those who are divisive. Paul speaks about Hymenaeus and Alexander who were divisive individuals within the church. So what are we to do with all this? We know that there's false teachers. We've talked about this as a church. They're serious. It's a serious issue within the church. So, so what are we to know and understand? The fourth point very quickly is this. The people that the false teachers want to deceive. Throw up the two points underneath there for me, Dave. First of all, we want to ask the question, who do they want? The answer is you. They want you. Just as our country tells us that terrorists want to hurt the citizens of the United States, so spiritual terrorists want to hurt you as Christians. They want to destroy your faith. Notice what it says in verse 26. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. They have you in their sights. So when those two nice individuals come knocking on the door, they're not wanting to tell you about the love of God. They're wanting to send you to hell because they have fallen for a scheme and a thought about a God that isn't the God of Scripture. Beware and be on guard because they want to lead you astray. How do they do it? Turn for a moment very quickly to 2 Peter, just a page over, easy to get to. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. He says they're going to come up with great stories. They're going to come up through ways of manipulation to drag you away. How do they start? By mixing some of the truth with lies. You know they, won't, you, they know you won't consume all the lies, and so they make it look pretty. They make it look nice. A couple of months ago, the Jehovah's Witness came to our house, and, and they hand you this uh, little magazine, and, uh, and nice little people on it, and looks, everybody looks happy in the kingdom of God, and all of that. And, and it looks nice, and they'll say that they love Jesus and love God. And it sounds good until you ask them, uh, well, is Jesus the Son of God? Oh, no, 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 Jesus isn't the Son of God. No, you, your, your, your Bible is messed up. And they'll begin to break down what is true Orthodox faith. Be careful. They're coming after you, and they want you to walk away by mixing the truth with stories. So what do we do with all this? 
I've gone over and I want to get done with this quickly. So let's nail these four things. Here's the application. Next week, we're going to talk about the us. What are we to do? I've been given the charge this week to focus in on the they. Who are the they, these false teachers? And what are we to do in response to them? Application or action point number one. Know what you believe. Know what you believe. Now, you would say, Tim, uh, theology is boring. Theology is, is, is too hard to understand. I, I could give you about almost uh, 18 or, or so people that are on Sunday nights in, in a theology class that I'm leading. Uh, and I don't think one of them thought how, how much they were really going to enjoy the class. And I can tell you, and I'm not just saying this to make my class look good, but we could line them up. And I think every one of them would say it was one of the most informational and, and greatest classes they've been a part of. I've gotten emails from some of these people. People that have articulated, I needed to know these things. I didn't, I wasn't aware of what I believed and why. Paul tells Timothy to study yourself to be approved unto God. That a workman needeth not to be ashamed when he's rightly dividing the word of truth. That passage of scripture that our children learn in Awana comes in the middle of a context of false teachers. Amidst the false teachers around you, you study to show yourself approved unto God. And so when someone says you're not following the right faith, you go to the scripture and says, I am not ashamed because I've studied and I've heard and I've read what God's word says and I am saved, no questions asked. Number two, be careful of what is branded as brand new. We live in a world where new means better. And I will go into bookstores and I will see numerous times a new look at Christianity, a new way of looking at Jesus, a fresh approach to God. And I'll tell you, and you don't, you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but I get very concerned when I see something that says it's new about Jesus. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And so we need to be careful that it doesn't mean that everything that's called new is, is a false teaching. But beware of it and start putting up your antenna to say, wait a minute, is there anything new that we need to know besides what's written in Scripture? And if someone starts to articulate and understand that there's a, you know, you've heard a lot about the Bible codes and that, that we haven't been reading the Bible like we were supposed to, beware. If God wanted us to understand the Bible code, he would have given us the decoder ring to go with the book. He didn't. He gave us the Holy Spirit and he says we can know his will that he has for us because of the reading of this scripture. Beware of those things that are brand new. Number two, popular isn't always biblical. Some of the largest megachurches in the United States and in the world are bastions of false teaching. And you won't even know it. One of the largest churches in America with the smiling pastor, and I won't go any farther than that, who raises his Bible and says he's going to preach from this Bible. When you look and understand his theology and doctrine, it is pitiful and it's ugly at best. Many would say it's false teaching. And as a result of that, we have to be careful. Just because you fill a whole bunch of pews and a whole bunch of seats in an auditorium doesn't mean what you're preaching is true. In fact, the question should be is why are so many people, uh, those that, uh, that the scriptures say is foolishness to the world, why are we filling all these places? Now again, that's not a knock on megachurches, but beware not to assume, well, everybody else is going there, and so that must mean that it's biblical. Be careful. Beware of things that look very popular because the gospel is an affront to people. And so what makes this so moldable and usable by the world? I, I was telling an individual, I'm always, and, and Kevin O'Brien will hate this as an as a employee of a publisher company, I always get a little leery when I see that a Christian book has sold millions of millions of copies. Because I'm sitting there going, well, I don't know how many Christians there are. So either all of the Christians in the United States bought that book, or there's a lot of unbelievers who have bought it and fallen in love with it. And the question I have is, is then where is the truth in that? Because Paul says this will be foolishness to the world. The world will read the truth and go, this is nonsense. And so I'm always concerned. Uh, I want to see people reading the truth. I want people to be exposed to Jesus Christ. But I always want to be careful that what is popular doesn't always mean it's biblical. Finally, we need to be Bereans at all times. Of course, we know what a Berean is. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, one of our ABFs takes this name. 
uh, Paul is, uh, is preaching and he's articulating the faith and the Bereans come and they listen to Paul. And even though they were listening to the apostle Paul, it says every night they went and studied the scriptures to see if what Paul was teaching lined up with scripture. Let me tell you something. I am only a couple steps from wandering away from being an orthodox teacher who teaches the truth to being a false teacher. And the last thing you should ever think about doing is saying, well, Tim says it's right, so it must be right. I will tell you, my parents will tell you, that is a bunch of malarkey. If you listen to me and hear what I'm saying and go to the scripture and say, okay, well, Tim said this today, where is it at in scripture? If it is defined and I can articulate in scripture where it's at, then listen to it freely and receive it. But never just assume because your pastor said it or an elder said it or your famous favorite Bible teacher said it, it doesn't mean that you just take it as biblical truth. But that you study the scriptures and make sure that what you've received is from the Lord. We live in a world, my friends, where people want us to wander from our faith. We live in a world where people want us to lead us astray. And we're going to learn about the Spirit's work in keeping us from that. But do these action points. Live this out because there are those who want us to be disqualified from our faith and in turn uh, not live up to the glory that God has called us to live so that he will be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you. And we praise you for what you're doing in our midst. Lord, we thank you that your word is, is preeminent here that we desire to open and study your word. But Lord, we know uh, greater Christians than us have, have started well and then have walked away from the faith. Many of us have started well in, in living out the truths of Scripture, but because of some cunning words of a teacher, we've walked away. Lord, we need your Spirit. We need your Spirit to abide in us and to live in us. And we too, we need to remain in you so that your truth will remain in us. So that, Lord, through that truth, we may be set apart to become more like you. That we would know your good and pleasing will. That we would understand your scriptures. So, Father, we need your leading. We need the truth of your scripture to permeate our lives. And, Lord, give us the strength when people come. Give us the discernment when, when teachers come and share a new thought about you. That we would be discerning enough to ask the question, how does that line up with the real Jesus that is articulated in the scriptures? Lord, I thank you for John's love for the church and his love to share with us even difficult things so that we may be kept on the right track and that we may live in light of what your word says about you. So Lord, send us from this place and remind us of the truth in verse 27. As for you, the anointing you've received from him remains in you. You do not need to know any, you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Father, I pray that we'll remain in you and stay true to the real thing, not the counterfeit. In Christ's name, we